Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Well, please be seated and good morning. So I wonder how good you are at answering obvious questions. How good are you at obvious questions? You might think, well, I'm pretty good at answering obvious questions because they're obvious, obviously, right? But I want to test that out this morning, and I have a little video for you. So, Eliza, can you click forwards? Let's see if we can do this. Hi, guys. It's Kaisei again. Welcome to the obvious test. These questions seem difficult, yet the answers are really obvious. So obvious you may have to facepalm multiple times. To make it fun, try and answer these questions in your head before I give you the answers. Good luck! Come along with me, I'll show you. How much dirt is there in a 14 by 12 by 10 hole? None. If it has dirt inside, then it's not a hole. If you're in a race and you overtake the person in second place, what place are you now in? You may have said first place, but actually you will end up in second place because all you are doing is essentially swapping places with the person in front of you. silk five times spell silk what do cows drink no not milk they drink water just like any other animal before Mount Everest was discovered what was the highest mountain in the world It was still Mount Everest, it's just it hadn't been discovered yet. How does Bill go 8 days without sleep? Ready? Go! He simply sleeps during the night. Finally, what 5 letter word becomes shorter when you add 2 letters to it? Short. Just add an E and an R. Okay, guys, you can turn that off. Thank you. So how did you do? Some of you are probably sitting there pretty smugly thinking, well, I got everyone right. They were so obvious, Jonathan. And then some of you are honest like myself realize, actually, I struggled to answer a few of those and got them wrong, right? Obvious questions. You're probably still trying to figure out the question about the hole in the dirt as well. You see... An obvious question to one person is a conundrum to another person. And today we're coming to the end of our short series in Romans chapter 8, and perhaps the pinnacle of all scripture. And we're given some very obvious questions. 
And yet, as obvious as they are, many of us struggle to answer them or believe the answers to be true unless we're completely certain of the other things Paul just shared in the build-up to today's passage, what some have called the most majestic passage. And what we've seen in verses 1 to 25 is he's preparing the way. Here we learn that those who follow Jesus are no longer under condemnation that they're completely forgiven, that they're experiencing newfound freedom, they've got new life, and most importantly, a new identity in, as adopted as God's children with all the rights and privileges of firstborn sons. And so if these things are true of all believers, and if God's defining characteristic is love, which I believe it is, and you, if you read scripture, you see that, then Paul, using these five questions, surmises that A plus B equals that nothing can separate those who believe in Jesus from the love of God. A plus B equals nothing can separate those who believe in Jesus from the love of God. So let's turn to our reading from Romans chapter 8, and let's answer some obvious questions together. And question number one comes in verse 31, and Paul asks this, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, notice that Paul doesn't just ask, who's against us? Who's against us? No, he knows that there are forces at work against Christians, okay? First from the Jews, then from the Romans and the Greeks and so on and so forth. Until today itself, we still find there is opposition to the Christian faith. More than this, as he notes in verse 35, death itself is still an enemy. Yes, it's defeated, but it's not yet finally destroyed. And also, there's the opposition of the evil powers and principalities that are at work in this world. And this opposition should come as no surprise to a follower of Jesus. After all, think about it. Jesus himself was no stranger to opposition. Have you captured that in his life story? Constantly being opposed, right, by other people. And so he once said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christians should expect opposition. It is, in fact, inevitable. Now, if you follow Jesus, people and powers will try and stop you. In fact, if you're not facing opposition from time to time, you might want to ask this, am I actually a Christian? Because if I'm following Jesus, I will encounter opposition. Or is it a case that I've watered down the message of the gospel so much that it means nothing anymore? And that when people hear it, they go, well, well, that's really nice. Let's have a cup of tea. Maybe a piece of cake with your tea as well. That sounds really lovely, Jonathan, right? No, the gospel is not lovely to most people because it confronts them with their sin. They don't want to hear that. Are you truly following Jesus? If you are, you're probably experiencing some kind of opposition. But Paul asks, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? What he's asking is, if God is God and he is all-powerful, which by definition God has to be, otherwise he's not God, right? Why are we afraid of any opposition at all? You may may find this hard to believe, but I was not once the physical colossus that stands before you today. 
I was once just a, a wee boy in England, and this wee boy went to private school, which in England, you know, can get you quite a lot of opposition. People don't necessarily like that. And part of the reason is that when you go to private school, you wear this fantastic uniform. I had these wonderful little gray shorts up to about here, right? I had my little shirt on, my little tie, I had my little blazer, and the piece that topped it off, I guess you call it the pièce de résistance, was the little cap that we had to wear to school. Not a baseball cap, didn't look cool, trust me. It was a cap, like a little flat cap thing. And so each day I would walk to school, it was about a mile, and I would have to walk to school. I was probably about seven, eight years old. And there were these boys who were probably 10, 11 years old, and they thought this was hilarious. I mean, it it was, to be honest, right? And so what they would do is they would laugh at me, they would make fun of me, and then eventually they would start to steal my cap every time I walked past them, and eventually they would toss it over the highest wall they could find right? They picked on me probably for a year or two as I walked to school. Well, one day, a kid from another school who was even bigger than they were, probably about my size now, probably about 14, 15 years old, saw these boys picking on me. And he came up to them and he told them, if I ever see you pick on this child again, you are going to be in so much trouble. Well, guess what? Did they ever pick on me again? No way. They knew that there was going to be a consequence. And it reminds me a bit of this question that Paul asked, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, just as that young man stood beside me, likewise, the Lord of all creation, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, stands beside us. He stands behind us. He stands in front of us. In fact, he is within us by his very Holy Spirit. And so there's no one. And there's no thing that we need fear, not even death itself. As King David puts it in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? No one. If God is for us, think about it. Who can be against us? Second obvious question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Now, what Paul's saying here is that God gave the best he had to give. So why would we doubt that he'd give us all that we need to live as his disciples? In giving his only son, Jesus, to die upon the cross, God proved his very love for us. As John Stott puts it, the cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. And if we doubt Paul's words, think about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus himself says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now I want you to imagine, just humor me, Uh, that on a whim, you decide to visit one of Charleston's car dealerships. It's actually a car dealership where they sell high-end sports cars. And while you're there, you decide that you're going to enter a prize drawing. There's a prize drawing going on. Well, later on that day, you get a call saying, in fact, that you've won. And guess what you've won? You've won a brand new red Ferrari. Brand new red Ferrari. Even better, when you go pick it up, they say, hey, it's all yours and it's tax-free. Tax-free. Take it home now. However, there is one problem. They refuse to give you the key. The car's yours, but you can't have the key. It'd be ridiculous, right? 
The car belongs to you. Whatever you need to drive it, therefore, is also yours. Likewise, since we've received the gift of God's Son and salvation in him, it's ridiculous to suppose that God will not give us everything else we need to follow him. Obvious question number three, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, this question and the next one, they start to use the language of the court. And Paul's argument is that since God, who's our judge, has already justified us, no prosecutor can ever possibly succeed against us. It is God who justifies, Paul says. He's declared us righteous. Our sins are already forgiven. So we have nothing, nothing to fear. How many of us, though, if we're honest, live our lives full of fear, fearfully believing that in God's eyes we are still guilty. There's some guilt against us. Perhaps it's because we're accusing ourselves or perhaps because we hear others accuse us, telling us we're no good. They say things like, you call yourself a Christian? Or maybe because the devil's constantly pressing charges against us in our minds saying, did God really say you're righteous? Are you really forgiven? How can you call yourself a Christian when you do insert that sin that you struggle with? You're just a hypocrite. But friends, we have been chosen by God. We've been chosen by him and we've been justified already. Yes, our, prior, our primary identity is as saints, not as sinners now. Say, I am a saint. I don't think you all said it. Let's say, I am a saint. I am a saint. Yes, you are a saint. That is your primary identity. Yes, you still sin, but you are a saint, one of God's holy ones, chosen by him. That's your identity that you should live out of each and every day. And so when those arrows that the enemy shoots at you or those darts come from people that you know, they just fall to the ground because there's this force field around you that just says, no, I'm a saint. (laughs) I'm righteous. I'm justified. Those things mean nothing to me. Because God loves me. Obvious question number four. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? We see that in verse 24. He's continuing with this language of the courtroom. And so Paul asks, why would we ever feel guilty or unforgiven if Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, is standing before the Father and he's advocating on our behalf? Paul writes this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Yes, you know, sometimes our own hearts, they condemn us. And so do our critics and our detractors, as well as our enemies and the evil forces within this world. But their condemnations will all fail. And why is that? Well, it's first of all, because Jesus died for the very sins for which we would otherwise be rightly condemned. He paid the price for them. And so we're redeemed from the condemnation of the law. Second of all, because Jesus was raised to life by the Father, which demonstrated his acceptance of the sacrifice of his Son as the only satisfactory basis for our justification. Thirdly, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, exercising his authority to save us and waiting to return and take us to be with him. And then finally, you know, Jesus isn't just sat there twiddling his thumbs up in heaven, right? Or perhaps playing on his harp, you know, blessed be the name of myself, (laughs) right? (laughs) No, he's constantly interceding on our behalf, continuing to secure for all his followers the benefits of his death. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. 
And taken together, all of these things now mean that we can confidently say that there's no one who can condemn us. None. Final obvious question Paul asks, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And we come to perhaps one of the most profound scriptures in all of the scriptures. This life-giving passage. Now, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but as a teenager, I had my heart broken by more girls than I care to count. (laughs) And it was painful. And, you know, thinking back, what really hurt when this happened was discovering that they didn't love me as I loved them. In fact, they didn't love me at all, right? And so there was this huge, insurmountable barrier to us being together. But what Paul's saying here is that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. No, his love is not like the fickle love of a teenager. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And to make sure that we truly understand what he's saying, he makes it as clear as possible in our final verses today, verses 35 through 39. It's as if Paul's standing up on that stage, right? And he's cranked up his his amp as far as it will go. It's it's gone beyond 10 to 11, right? And so he's got the electric guitar out. He's going to let it rip. And then he writes this, Shall tribulation? No. Or distress, no. Or persecution, no. Or famine, no. Or nakedness, no. Or danger, no. Or sword, no. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's Paul's own story, right? He's experienced all of those things. And what his experience has taught him is that the words of Jesus and Scripture themselves are all true. And so he continues in this glorious crescendo. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As our friend Kendall would say, Boom! (laughs) If he was here, and he'd probably drop the mic and walk off the stage. Well, I haven't seen him do that yet, but I'm hoping one day he will. (laughs) This is such good news for all Christians, right? You and I can face the trials of this life confident that nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. Not divorce, not disappointment, not disease, not doubt. Not addictions, not depression, not debt, not distress, not disasters, not even death itself can separate us from his amazing love. And why is that? Well, nothing can separate us from Christ's love because God loves us simply because he chooses to. Just simply because he chooses to. Not because of anything in us which may change or anything around us which also may change. He loves us because he loves us. Let that sink in for a moment. He loves us because he loves us. It's good news. You know, the closest analogy I can think of is the love of a good parent for their child. If you've ever been a parent, do you remember those first few days when you would put the baby in their crib, probably in a separate room somewhere, and at night, I did this, I suspect you did this too, you would open the door, You'd peek in at this sleeping child and just think, how can I love this thing so much? I only just met this baby, right? And yet I would die for this child right here, right now. 
That is the closest analogy I can think of. And yet even that only scratches the surface of God's perfect love for his children. So there we have it. Five profound and yet obvious questions, at least for a follower of Jesus. And they have five quite stunning answers. And Pastor Tim Keller writes this. The purpose of these questions is almost to beat us out of our disbelief that we are saved totally by grace and are therefore completely safe to face life without fear. It is incredible, relentless, intense logic. It is logic on fire. You see, the Apostle Paul knows that we will always struggle to believe that we are justified by grace through faith. We'll always revert to the idea that we need to in some way earn our salvation. After all, nothing's free in life, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Wrong. Wrong. And so he wants to hammer home the incredible nature of God's love for his people. You see, the God of the universe is for us. The Lord of creation will give us everything that we need. The Father Almighty has proclaimed us righteous. The King of kings has forgiven us our sins. And now nothing can separate us from the love of our Abba Father. Friends, this week I hope and pray that we'll all remember that as followers of Jesus, we are loved. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That we will live out of this identity and not the identity that the world might try and put upon us. But don't just remember it. Now go out and share this message with the broken world that we are a part of. Yes, it's good news for us. But there are so many people who need to hear this message. People who are separated from the love of God because they've never chosen to receive his love. They're living next door to you or across the street or you work with them. Maybe you sit next to them in school or you bump into them at the gym or at rec sports or at a local restaurant or school PTA meetings or dinner at the club or at the golf course. When you do, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all people. It's the one thing we all truly need. People need to know that they are loved. And when you're tempted to believe that you can't do it, remember Paul's words in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And today, if these questions weren't obvious to you or the answers weren't obvious to you, it's likely that you still need to give your life to Jesus, that you need to repent of your sin, to turn towards him, ask him to forgive you, and choose to follow him from now on forwards. Please take a moment to do that now. And if you do that, let me know. I'd love to know that so we can talk more about what that means. You know, it may not be an easy decision. And having made that decision, the road ahead will not be easy. But remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love. Thank you that if we know you, there is nothing that ever can separate us from that incredible love that we are yours and that you choose to love us just because you choose to love us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Help us to live out of that identity, not just today, but all the days of our lives, living in peace and true freedom and living in joy because of that reality. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.